Amen. Well, if you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. That's what we're going to be this morning. Uh, uh, it's good to be back with you guys. I feel like I've been gone for a long time, uh, and I'm happy to say that I really, really missed you while we were gone. <laughs> There's no church that me and, and my family would rather be at than this one. And so it, is, it feels like sweet rest to be home and to be worshiping with you again this morning and to be back in 1 Corinthians uh, uh, we are, are in the, I guess, uh, roughly the middle in, in terms of time, not in terms of the book, of this study through 1 Corinthians. It's going to carry us on to the rest of the year. And we come to chapter 4 today, which wraps up a big section at the beginning of the letter where Paul has been coming at his friends on the, on, on the issue of their pride. Because their pride and their love for themselves had begun to divide the church in all sorts of ways that he's been describing. One of the main ways it's been dividing them, though, is, is it's divided them among a group of leaders who had been teachers in the church, probably, and guys were lining up behind them, saying, you know, by lining up with Apollos, instead of Paul, I show that I have better tastes than you do, you know, that I'm wiser, I have more insight. I, I, uh, it's, it's like wearing one kind of shirt, one brand of shirt, and not another. They're, they're doing a lot of that, comparing themselves to each other, trying to puff up their own pride. Paul's been hammering them for it. He's been showing them that that has nothing to do with the gospel. It really shows that they don't understand that the only thing they have that matters in their life, the only thing that's, that separates them from absolute dejection and ultimately death is not something they've done, but something that's been done for them, something they've been given as a gift. And it's a message that no one would have ever thought of. It's one that nobody likes to hear. It's a message of God himself coming to the world and dying. That's what he's been pointing them back to. Um, and for that reason, because he's been sort of getting himself and all other leaders out of the way, it's saying, don't think about us, especially in the last section at the end of chapter 3. Don't, don't think about us. Think about Jesus and everything that's yours in him, because that's where he's been building to. It's a little bit strange that in chapter 4, the main thrust of the passage, the whole thing, is driving to Paul calling them to imitate him. He's basically saying, be like me. It comes up in verse uh, let's see, verse 6, he's telling them things about himself in the few verses before that, and then he says, I'm telling you this stuff about myself for your benefit, in other words, so that you will copy me. And then, and then it really drives it home later in verse 16. I urge you then, this is, then is, on the basis of everything I've said in this whole chapter, I urge you, be imitators of me. It seems a little bit out of place. What in the world? Paul is calling them Im- imitate him after he's been trying to get them away from identifying with leaders. I think what we're going to see, though, What we're going to see, the the reason it works, is that Paul's not calling them to imitate him because he's so great, but because he has learned by the Spirit's power to work the message of the gospel into the details of his life. He's calling them to imitate him because he, by God's grace, not because of his own effort, has started to show what it looks like for the gospel to change the way you think and the way you interact with your world. Those are the two things we want to focus on this morning. Paul, by by pitting his own example against the behavior of the people in Corinth, he's showing them the way you should think about yourself if you truly understand the point of Jesus' death and the way you should interact with your world if you truly see yourself in light of Jesus' death. What we're going to talk about, the the phrase that we want to use for, for Paul's mindset and his approach to life is gospel humility, a humility that's rooted in the message of Jesus that's been the point of everything Paul said so far to this point in the letter. Now, I want to read this passage first, and then we'll get into the details of it. So, would you please stand with me now, in honor of God's word, 
as I read from chapter 4. I'm going to read the whole thing, verses 1 to 21. So get comfortable. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what's written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign, so we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. For we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We've become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ, Jesus, through the gospel. I urge you then, Be imitators of me. This is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I'll find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I mentioned Paul, the whole chapter builds to that statement in verse 16. I urge you to be imitators of me. Go ahead and be like me. What we want to do to unpack Paul's point here and to really drive it in for us is figure out what it is he wants him imitating. And and like I said at the beginning, what you'll see on your worship guide if you want to follow along there is I think it's two steps. A mindset of what we're calling gospel humility, what it looks like to see yourself in light of the gospel, and the lifestyle of gospel humility, what it looks like to interface with your world, with what happens to you, with the way that you're treated by other people in light of who you are in Christ. The mindset and the lifestyle of gospel humility. I'm going to start with the mindset, and this is verses 1 to 7. This is where Paul describes how he thinks about himself. And what he describes here is radically unnatural. I want to unpack what it is that he says about himself and the way he, way he thinks about himself. And then we'll talk about why it's so unnatural, why it's so different from what comes natural to us. 
and where we can get the power to be like Paul, to see ourselves the way he does. Verse 3 is the key here. Verses 1 and 2 just connect this chapter to what's come before, reminding them we're nothing. Me and these leaders that you're lining up behind, we're just stewards. We're to be trustworthy to what we've been given. That's it. Now here, here's how I think about myself. Verse 3. With me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Basically, I don't care what you think about me. And then he says, I don't even judge myself. So basically, I don't care what you think about me. I don't really even care what, what I think about me. I'm not aware of anything against myself, he says. I, as far as I know, I'm not guilty against you, of something against you. But, but my sense that I'm okay is not what I trust in. It's not my own sense of my worth and my goodness and rightness that I trust in. I'm not acquitted by that. I'm not, well, that's a word for justified. I'm not made right because I don't think I'm guilty here. It's the Lord who judges me. And here's what's going on. Look at what he's, look at what he's, he's denying. Two sides of this, of, of this coin. He doesn't care what others think about him on one side. He doesn't care what he thinks about himself on the other side. Now, we all know what it is to be affected by what other people think about us, right? We, we have all experienced that to one degree or another. And I think pretty much everybody these days thinks that's a bad thing, to really, really care what other people think about you, to, to sort of rise and fall with how well you think you're doing in the eyes of others is something that pretty much any therapist worth their salt is going to tell you is a bad thing, right? And Paul would agree. But I think the prevailing wisdom these days is to fix this problem with low self-esteem because other people don't think very highly of us by just building up your own self-esteem, right? What you need is not just to, to, to forget about what other people think about you. You need to replace that with a higher view of yourself, with a confidence that's sort of rooted in your own standards and therefore detached from what other people think about you. That's the solution to low self-esteem is, is higher self-esteem. It's our standards that matter, not others' standards. So decide what's important to you and then do that thing or be that person. But the problem with that solution is that it's still just as focused on us. And it's no more certain that we're going to fare any better at meeting our own standards than we fared at meeting somebody else's standards. It's still a performance-based look at ourselves, right? And it's still all about us. Paul is charting a middle course here. Now, I want to I pause here as a sort of aside and tell you that there's a great booklet that I've got on the, worship, or on the resource table back here that's on this passage, and it's really helped me uh, understand and, and drive in some of the details of it. Uh, it's, it's where the gospel humility language comes from, and some more language I'm about to introduce you to. It's this little book here. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's by Tim Keller. I, I think it has the feel of a sermon that's been sort of beefed up uh, into a little booklet. And there's a bunch, there's a stack of them back there. Uh, so if you're interested in what I'm about to talk about for the next few minutes, this is a great place to follow up with that. A lot of it came from here. It's, it's a sermon that was on this, these first few verses of chapter 4. Here's what Keller says about this passage, about, what, about Paul's mindset. Paul is saying, I've got freedom from what the Corinthians, what other people think about me. You know, that's not really where I'm going to rise or fall. I've got freedom from what I think about me. I'm not obsessed with myself. So in place of that, he's, he's found a middle ground where he, 
where he doesn't think about himself at all. He just thinks about the Lord and his judgment. It's what Keller calls self-forgetfulness. When the gospel starts to change how we understand ourselves, it's not, it shows us that the solution to our, our self-esteem problem, our sort of rising and falling, is not trying to please other people better than we have, or trying to please ourselves, but it's, so in other words, it's not thinking less of myself or more of myself. It's thinking, here's the key, it's thinking of yourself less. When the gospel starts to change how you think, when the mindset of gospel humility starts to replace your self-obsession, it doesn't mean that you think less of yourself, like you're really down on yourself. It doesn't, think, it doesn't mean that you think more of yourself, like you think you're really great and you've got better self-esteem. What it means is that you don't think of yourself much at all. You think of yourself less. Here's, here's a quote from the, the booklet. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself. It's that simple. It's not needing to connect things with myself. True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. It's the freedom of self-forgetfulness. Where has Paul found this freedom? Verse 4 is the key. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul has locked in on God's judgment of him as the only thing that really matters. And even though he doesn't say it here, he doesn't really have to because he's been saying it for the first three chapters. What he knows about God's judgment of him is that God is for him in Jesus. That because of Jesus has died, because Jesus by his death is taken away, Paul's record of sin and replace it with a perfection that no sin can take away, because God now has justified him in Jesus, Paul knows what the Lord judges, how the Lord judges him. And he knows that he is for him in Christ. The cross is the key. It's everywhere through this letter. It's the reason he knows God's judgment is of him as a forgiven son who's accepted and approved and the beloved child of the king. And this judgment, this knowing that he is the son of God, fully approved and accepted, is what trivializes in his mind what others might think about him or even what he thinks about him. And it's what frees him not to really think about himself much at all because he knows he is good. God has declared him to be so. He's not acquitted by what other people think or what he thinks. He's acquitted or justified, made right by what God says about him. Now, I've said this way of thinking about himself that that Paul is describing here. It is radically unnatural. Paul knows that. That's why he says in verse um, verse 6 that he's applied these things to to himself. He's trying to be a model for them for their benefit because he knows it's not how they're thinking about themselves. Uh, Verse 6 describes what comes natural to them and to us. What's natural is to be puffed up in favor of one against another. If you you break down verse 6, that's really what he's driving at. I apply these things for your benefit so that, skip a little bit ahead to the payoff, you won't be puffed up against each other. What he knows is that they, like us, are constantly, they were constantly thinking of themselves. We do the same thing. Puffed up here is is a great translation of this word. It's that your sense of yourself and how big you are in your own mind is puffed up. It's inflated, bigger than it should be, so that that you just see yourself in everything. And everything ultimately is about you. You're puffed up. That's what it is. And that what feeds this, the other other insight in verse 6, what feeds this bigness of ourselves in our own eyes is comparison to other people. 
to be puffed up in favor of one over against another. We weigh ourselves by what other people have or don't have, by what they think. And it's in all of us. It was interesting to me this last week. We were at a, uh, I had this stuff in my mind, thinking, about, thinking ahead to the sermon. And we were at this conference for pastors, uh, and, and it was a conference that's att- attached to a group that supported our church plant. And, and um, they don't fund our church anymore, but they still sort of send nice things to me as a church planter to try to make me feel good. And one of the things they'd sent me and apparently lots of other church planters was this backpack Right? that had the branding of the organization on it. And I'm usually really against that sort of thing. And had even thought about cutting it off this backpack. Um, but the backpack was really good. I mean, it, was, it had great components to it. Like a lot, it was really well organized. And the one I had before was falling apart, and so I decided to take it. And then we get on the shuttle to go get our rental car, and the first person to step onto the shuttle has the exact same backpack. And then we get to the rental car place, and in line ahead of us, a couple spots ahead, same backpack. We get into, our, we get into our, uh, our hotel elevator, and I think there were like two other same backpacks in the elevator. And I'm laughing to myself because I'm sort of, probably because I've been in this text, I'm kind of a little more self-aware than I normally would be. And I'm having this sort of gut reaction to the fact that I have the same backpack that these other guys have. And I'm sort of able to detach a little bit and say, well, what, why is this making me a little bit nauseated right now? Is it... Is it because I don't want to be like that guy? I see that guy and I think he's got this backpack and I, am, I don't want to be him, so I don't like the fact that I have is it. Is it more that I just want to be different? Like I want my tastes to set me apart from other people and it's really important to me that people see me that way. I don't, I'm not even sure what kind of neurosis led to the, the feeling that I have. But I guess you're, I'm guessing you're with me here, right? You've had that experience, right? Uh, any, any moms compare strollers out there, right? <laughs> You know, there's even like a pecking order of what kind of strollers you might have for your kids. Uh, we do it in, isn't it one of the things that drives social networking and viewing of pictures, right? Like on Facebook. Don't you partly scroll through other people's pictures to sort of see how their life is measuring up against yours? Maybe you don't. I hope you don't. Don't hear me saying get off Facebook, right? It can be a great tool. It's a fun way to connect. But, but there's, there's implications to all of these things that we use in our lives, including like Instagram. All of these pictures, great way to share them. But do you ever find yourself sort of checking out other people's pictures to see how their friends measure up against yours, how, what relationship they, what status they have and, and how it measures against yours, maybe what sort of clothes they're wearing, what sort of things they're doing for fun and how it measures up to your life? We compare all the time through just about every outlet we can get our hands on. It's in us, and Paul is explaining why. It's because we're puffed up, insecure, empty, and scrambling to fill that void with anything that can make us matter. We want to be somebody. But when God is the one who justifies, we lose all right for this kind of self-obsession. For this kind of self-obsession to work, we have to be able to find something that we have that others don't have that sets us apart from them. But what Paul says in verse 7 is, who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive. Everything you have that matters about you is the same thing that God has given to all others who call on his name. There is nothing in you that matters that is not a gift. So you lose the right for this kind of self-obsession. But the more beautiful thing here is that you lose the reason for this kind of self-obsession. You don't need to worry about how you measure up against anybody else. 
Because when God justifies you, when he tells you you are his child because of Jesus, you are free to forget yourself and to look to him. And it is a rest in every sense of the word. I've, I've, tried, I've been trying to think about ways to sort of image the restlessness that comes from always having to compare, to sort of build a, a reputation for yourself to become a somebody, versus the rest that comes from just accepting who you are in Jesus and being good with it, that all things are yours, as Paul said at the end of the last chapter. Here's what I came up with. Hopefully it'll work for you. It works a little bit for me. I don't know when tax time comes around if you're a standard deduction person or a categorized, listed out expenses, itemized expenses person. Do you guys know what I mean? Let me know. Give, give me a head nod if you know the difference between these two things. I've, I've been in both categories. I had a job once where I had to, uh, to keep up with expenses as part of it, and, and it would like knock off what I owed the IRS. And, and then mostly I just take the standard deduction. There's a kind of rest that comes from the standard deduction, right? You get this certain wad of money, and you don't even think about whether or not you've had more expenses than that. You just accept that it is going to be more, and, and hopefully way more, than what you could have gotten if you had tried to categorize all your expenses. What God offers us in Christ is a sort of standard deduction rest. Here is who you are. Here is what you have. You can't add to it. Nothing could ever be greater than it. But the way we live is as if we have to itemize, I think. As if we, as if we might be able to do better than the standard deduction. Is that working? You guys with me? I don't need to play this out somewhere. I'm getting a lot of blank stares. The rest that we're supposed to have in Christ is that he has given us a new status, a new identity, that's a, a, a connection to him that offers riches that can never be matched by anything else in the world. So why do we run around out there like chickens with their heads cut off trying to assemble for ourselves an identity that will be better than the one we've been given as if we possibly could? It's a restlessness that, speak, that, that, that actually throws mud on the beauty and sufficiency of what Jesus promises us. So let's accept it and rest in it and be done with trying to build a name for ourselves. That's the calling. That's what Paul is imaging for us. That's what he models for us here. So be like Paul. Think of yourself with gospel humility and rest in what God has offered you. That's the first thing. The rest of the verses, especially though verses 8 to 13, the one we really want to drill down here, they describe how Paul lives his life, how he encounters the things that happen to him in his life, and how he does it differently because he thinks of himself like, like we've just been describing. When he has the mindset of gospel humility, he not only, it doesn't just affect what's going on in his head and give him a sort of inter, internal peace. It does that, and that's huge, but that's not, it doesn't stop there. It then shapes how he interfaces with everything that he goes through in life. Uh, so what, we, what we're describing here is maybe a lifestyle or even the fruit would maybe have been a better word if I had thought about that in time to get it into the worship guide. The fruit of gospel, of gospel humility. Here's what it would look like to live differently, to encounter things differently if you thought about yourself as one who was a child of God. Paul shows this in two steps. Two different dimensions come out. One of them is related to the circumstances of life. The other is, rated, is related to his treatment, the treatment that he experiences at the hands of other people. So we, like, like the Corinthians, we tend to aim our lives at a pursuit of better circumstances, and we're driven by a fear of worse circumstances. We want to be climbing a ladder, not going down a ladder, right? 
That's, a, that's one of the most basic drives in us. We're locked in. Another way to say it is that we're locked in on and we're swayed by what we get out of life. And we, like the Corinthians, tend to measure our attitude and our commitment towards other people by how well we're treated and what we get from those other people. Which is to say, another way of putting it, that we're locked in on and swayed by how we're treated by others. We're swayed by what we get out of life. We're swayed by how we're treated by other people. Another way to put it, yet again, is that my joy and my hope and my faith tend to rise and fall with how pleasant my life circumstances are. By whether I think I'm getting what I need and what I deserve. Those two things, those categories. Whether I get what I need or what I think I deserve. And my love for other people tends to rise and fall with how they respond to me or how they treat me. And Paul, in this, in this paragraph here, Paul turns those norms completely upside down. Paul begins with irony in verse, in verse uh, 8. He's, he's pointing out how they're pursuing their lives and how different it is from the way that he and the other apostles live. If they're all about getting more, gaining more, climbing a social ladder, and they're even using their Christianity to that end. They think their connection to Jesus is about getting more out of life. So Paul points to them. It, it says, already you have all you want. Look at how great you've got it. You've become kings. As if God's kingdom were already here and you were sitting on his throne. And would that you did reign. Here's him being sarcastic. So I, we might reign with you. Our lives might be better if you, were, if you were in charge instead of the guys who are actually running things around here. But by contrast, verse 9 says, God has put us on display as last of all, sentenced to death. The, the image that he's calling on was one that was common to people in the Roman world. When there had been war or something like that, or, or criminals, there would be a procession or a parade that would come through the city afterwards, and those who had been captured and who were sentenced to death would be last of all. They'd be drug along in chains. And Paul's saying that's, that's basically what God has done. He's put us on display as the scum of the earth, destined for death. We've become a spectacle. Now, in verses, verse 10, 11, and 12 is where, he, is where he gets really specific. Again, he's still contrasting his way of life with theirs and using some irony here, some sarcasm. He says, we're fools, even though you think you've become wise in Christ. We, we're seen as foolish. We're seen as weak, and we actually are weak, even though you're trying to be strong. You're held in honor, but we're shamed. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed. We're buffeted. We're homeless. We labor, working with our hands. All while you think you get to reign as kings. They're missing something here. And here's what Paul's trying to show them from his own life. What he's trying to show them is that he has come to live as if the gospel's really true. What the gospel says, what he summarized for us in the passage that Seth looked at last week at the end of chapter 3, is that if, if it's all true, that in, in Christ, everything is yours. You already have all that you need. There is nothing that can be taken away from you. There is nothing that you need that could be added to you. Everything is yours because you are Christ, and Christ is God's, and your identity is in him. If that's true, then Paul doesn't really care about his circumstances. They don't even register with him. He doesn't care if he's a fool or if he's weak or if he's shamed or if he's hungry or thirsty or if he doesn't have nice clothes to wear, if he's homeless, if he has to work hard just to get food on his table. He doesn't care. He's good with that. 
Because what he gets out of life is not the measure of how, of how much he's going to trust God or how happy or satisfied he's going to be. He doesn't need. He, he has come to a place where he doesn't need or feel that he deserves wisdom or strength or good reputation or plenty of food and water or great clothes or a nice house or a cushy job. These things to him are neither here nor there. They just don't register. So, by analogy, I, I, my family and I, we live in a really great duplex about two or three blocks that way. We don't live in the governor's mansion over in Oak Hill. You guys ever seen this place? It's awesome. It's really nice. But I've never really felt like I wasn't getting something I needed by the fact that I'm not living in this governor's mansion. It's just never been something that I've felt like I needed. It's huge, right? It's got all these servants. It'd be great. Don't get me wrong, but I've never felt like I needed it. I've also never really felt like I deserved it. Like, there's no reason for me, as opposed to any of you or anyone else that I know, living in that house. None of us are particularly entitled to that. And so the fact that I live in a duplex and not in the governor's mansion just doesn't register with me. I don't care. Paul's like that with everything in life. He's like, I don't even need clothes. Why do I care what I, got, what I, what I have to wear? It doesn't register with him because he's not driven by what he needs or what he deserves. As he interfaces with the circumstances of his life, he's found a freedom above all of that. Does it mean that we can't have nice things? You know, that if we're really going to follow Paul, then we've got to get rid of all of our stuff? I, I don't think it means that. It might. I don't know. I, I don't pretend to know what God would call you to. I don't think it means that. I think it means we can't demand nice things or love them too much. It means that we're to aim at what Paul describes in a different one of his letters in Philippians 4 at a contentment. He says he's learned the secret of contentment. He's learned to be content in whatever he has. I know how to get along with much. I know how to get along with little. And the reason he knows how to get along in either circumstance is that he's locked in on something deeper and more fundamental than what he does or doesn't have in this life. He doesn't need or deserve a cushy life. So what, we want, what, it does, what this means for us is not that we can't have nice things or enjoy them as gifts of God. It means we can't, we can't allow these things. And this is a trick. Man, this is hard. It, is, it only happens by the power of God's Spirit. It means we can't let these things that we enjoy factor into how we weigh the goodness of life or the trustworthiness of God. We've got to be able to enjoy them, but with an open-handedness. We can't allow our assessment of God's trustworthiness to be tied too closely to what we do or don't have. And when we understand that Jesus is ours and that in Him all things are ours, we have a freedom from rising and falling with the goodness of this life and what we get out of it. That's what Paul's modeling for us. That's the, that's the goal that we're shooting at. Now, from the next two verses, verses 12 and 13, here's a, here's a second dimension of the fruit of Paul's gospel mindset in his life. It's not just changed the way he interfaces with, with what he experiences here in the circumstances of his life, whether he has much or nothing. It also changes the way he interacts with other people. And this is even more radical, I think, than not caring about whether you have much or have little. It changes the way he interacts with other people. What we said at the top, I, th- I think this is true for you, just like it is for me. What we tend to do is rise and fall in our relationships with other people based on how they're treating us. We assess how we interact with others based on how much they value us and whether they treat us in the way we think we need to be treated or deserve to be treated. Now look at how Paul responds to those who are in his life. When reviled, he said, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. 
when slandered, we entreat, we woo, we try to win over. Nothing gets to him. Why? Quite simply because the treatment of other people and their assessment of him isn't a factor in his identity. Who he is, how he knows who he is, isn't attached to the way that they treat him. Little kids often think it's hilarious that I don't have any hair. I've been getting that at least for the last three or four years. What would it say about me if I was bowled over every time a kid makes fun of my hairline? If, if, If that really landed with me and sent me low? What would that say about me? It doesn't have any effect on me, what little kids think about my hair, because I really just don't care what little kids think about me. They're not a factor in my identity. Here's an even better one. When I worked uh, a few years ago, back in grad school, um, I was working part-time for this cell phone company. And we were, we were set up in these busy locations where they couldn't put like a full-fledged retail store to, to basically just do sell, sales and churn out cell phones. But people would come to Cool Springs Mall, wherever I happened to be, and come to the little kiosk in the middle and expect me to fix things for them as if I was a customer service center, and I wasn't. And over time, I just got really, I got to where I really enjoyed telling them that I couldn't help them and watching their anger just rise, (laughs) right? And just smiling at them and just kind of repeating the same line over and over. Sorry, you're going to have to go to Maryland Farms, the customer service center. Sorry, can't fix it. Got to do sales. And they would just, they would sometimes, I mean, their abuse of me would, verbal abuse of me would often rise and get more and more. It's like the worse it got, the more pleasure I got out of not being affected by it. Because ultimately I knew I was going to go home and sleep great that night and they were going to go home with a broken phone. And nothing they said was going to change that. Because their assessment of me and my job performance had no part in my own identity, right? I didn't care, I was impervious to it because... They just had nothing, to, they could do nothing to me, right? Whereas if, if, you know, if they had been my boss and they were down on my job performance, that would have been another thing. He had a fact, that would factor into my identity a little bit more. Or if it was my wife and she didn't respect me as a, as a, a man or as, as a worker or a provider, well, that would have a huge impact on me, right? Well, but these people had nothing to do with me. I, I was insulated from their reviling, their slandering. Now, that gets us a little bit closer to what Paul is saying here, but Paul's actually even more radical than that. He takes it a step further. So negatively, when people come at him, it doesn't affect him. It just doesn't register in the same way that it would if he didn't have gospel humility. But he even takes it a step further. Not only does he not get thrown off by it, but he actually wants to win them over. He wants to do them good. He wants to bless them when they, when they slander him and, and entreat them when he's, when he's reviled or slandered. He wants to win them over to persuade them. He wants to love them even when they hate him. Now that takes it to a different level. That's just not natural. This is cross-shaped treatment of others, right? It is love for, concern for, investment in the very people who hurt you. Think about Christ on the cross praying to his Father that he would forgive those who were killing him in that moment because they don't know what they do. 
Think about the fact that Scripture from beginning to end tells a story of God coming into this world on a rescue operation to rescue the very ones, us, who have told him by our actions, by our lack of faith, that he isn't trustworthy. He comes to us when we shame him to win us back, to make us clean. And Paul has tapped into that power. It's not that good treatment from others or or a trust in them in pursuit of their love is a bad thing. We do need each other. It's one of the main reasons we need church, right? Is that if we're walking around on our own, then we're not going to have the encouragement that's meant to be ours through through our connection to others who believe. And, and, and all, none of us are, no man is an island, right? To use the cliche, that's a very true thing. So it's not like Paul should just not care about people or not in some sense need them to invest in his life, need to trust them and pursue their love. Clearly, that's not a bad thing. But the point here, what he, what he is saying, is that Paul isn't at the mercy of what others do and say toward or about him. It, this passage, I don't even think, means that he can't be hurt. So I want to I qualify even some things I've said. I've said them for effect, but I want to rein it in a little bit and say, it, it, Paul isn't even necessarily saying here that when they, when they reviled him, it didn't sting. Or when they slandered him, he didn't have an instinctive reaction against that. But it didn't hurt him. What's shown here is that he responds differently when he's hurt. And he responds through gospel humility. Because his assessment of himself is not puffed up to where everyone is to be weighed by how well they treat him. His assessment of himself is appropriate and in light of Jesus and has security from his cross. And therefore, when people do hurt him, the way he responds is in the way Jesus responded to Paul. It means there's a power in him that makes him more concerned for the soul of the one who wounds him than the wounds that they've given him. Do you see that? Let me say that again. This is, this is, this is transformational. I think in this, these phrases that Paul uses, that when he's reviled, he blesses. When he's slandered, he entreats or woos or tries to persuade and win over. He's showing that when he is wounded by other people, what he takes away from that experience is less the wounds that they've given him than a concern for their souls, for what it says about them that they would try to wound him. He wants to see them won over to Jesus. He's not obsessed with how they've hurt him. It's almost like their wounding of him is more about them in his mind than it is about him. And the point of a lifestyle that isn't beholden to what you possess or how well you're treated. The point of this kind of lifestyle that Paul is calling on them to imitate in this chapter is the same as the point of the first three chapters when he was telling them not to line up behind this leader or that leader to recognize the foolishness of the cross and God's intent that it be foolish so that he, his power is displayed. The point through this, through this chapter is the same as through the earlier chapters, and it's this. That when you show a lifestyle that is not at the mercy of how well you're treated or what you possess, you are proving in your life the power of God that is always made perfect in weakness. It is when you are weakest and have the least and are treated the most poorly that you have an opportunity in your life to display a power that is greater than anything this world has ever seen through any other source besides Jesus and his cross. When you respond in a way that is totally unnatural, what you do 
is you point to a power that could transform even sinners like us. What sort of power can make this possible? It is only possible through a resource that so perfectly meets our needs that we are placed beyond the reach of what otherwise would crush us. And that is the power that our lives are put here to put on display, to celebrate, to put under a microscope, to put under a spotlight for all the world to see the transformational power of gospel humility as the cross of Jesus begins to shape how we live in this world and with each other. That's the power that we want to pray to God for right now in each of us and in our community. Join me now. Let's, let's pray to God. God, our Father, holy and powerful like none other, we, we have seen a vision of life that's beautiful. And because it was possible for Paul, in spite of the fact that he was weak and human just like us, we trust that it's possible for us to think about ourselves this way and to respond to our lives this way. And, and so we appeal to you for the power of your Spirit to change us to change what we love, to change how we see, to change what we do and feel. We know that the only hope we have for imitating Paul is if we tap into the same power that changed his life. We want that power, Father, and we, we throw ourselves at your feet asking for it. We can't do anything to earn it, and we certainly don't have it on our own. But we ask that you would glorify yourself by giving us the power to be radically unnatural. We ask that for ourselves as individuals, and even we ask that for our church, because we know that no community made up of selfish, self-centered, sinful humans like us will ever survive unless a power is in us that can overcome what comes natural to us. We pray for that power, and for a community, a church, that will glorify you as the God who made all things and can even make us new. We commit ourselves and this prayer to you in Jesus' name. For his sake, amen.